open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. That's the first thing that we're going to need, is we're going to need the Bible. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which I have in my hand here, I'm trying to get your page number for you, you are going to go to page 807. 807. That's the first thing we need. The second thing that we need is we need the Holy Spirit. We do. If you don't know any theology, you're just going to have to trust me on this. We need the Holy Spirit. So we're going to ask him to be involved in this time. Pray with me, and then I will have you stand, and we'll read scripture together. God, you know that my body is a little tired today, and I bet a lot of us in the room kind of feel the same way. But it is a beautiful thing to see how you've supplied our land with, with water, and we thank you for it. And because we're all a little tired, I rely on you, Holy Spirit, even more to deliver your message to your people. Fall upon this place in a fresh way that unites us as a beautiful bride, that Jesus, we would be a people that you would long for us to be, and that this time would be fruitful for your kingdom. Amen. All right, stand with me, just so that you can use your body to remind yourself how significant it is. We are going to start in Luke chapter 4, and I want to actually start at verse 28. Luke chapter 4, verse 28, as we continue the Our House series. Just a little bit, and I'll explain this in a little bit more, but this is happening at a church service, okay? So, verse 28 of chapter 4 of Luke. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You can be seated. This right here, I almost thought about uh, if, you, if you play around with like the online memes or whatever and they do that like record scratch and he goes... Yep, that's me. I bet you're wondering how I got here. That would be this scene that we just started with here. That this is a church gathering, a synagogue gathering in Luke chapter 4. And where we started was looking at the ultimate triggered reaction. The people that were here, and we'll see in a second, that what they heard... They decided to enact mob justice on Jesus, and without a trial, they sentence him to death and try to execute him. And it's only because of his true power that he just slips out of their grasp, eluding death, which ought to cause us to ask the question, why are you so triggered? What's with the strong reaction? What's going on here? Go to uh, verse 16 of chapter 4. If we go to verse 16, we're going to get the answer. What was it that happened that was such a big deal? I'll give you, give you a little, uh, a quick answer to that before we even read it. Because I want you to be thinking about it while we read it. The reason why they reacted so strongly is that Jesus neither said what they wanted him to say 
nor did he do what they wanted him to do. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and so was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. You see, from early childhood, Jesus was raised in this town, the town of Nazareth. And and yet he began his public ministry where he started doing things that people had heard about. He began this public ministry in other towns. He only has returned home to Nazareth where our scene is for the day just so that he could do a home visit. So as was his custom, he gets to the synagogue. The synagogue was where the Jews would meet essentially for kind of what we took over as Christians as church. They would get together because they didn't live in Jerusalem where the temple was. And so this was the place where they would gather, the synagogue. This was their church service. And if you were a Jew living in the town of Nazareth, you were in this synagogue. This wasn't something that people would just like casually choose to go to or not go to. Everybody in town that was Jewish was in this synagogue. They had all gathered as a whole town. Now, they knew this guy, Jesus. He had lived among them for 25 years, working as one of their local craftsmen. Yet they had heard that Jesus was doing a whole lot more than just his blue-collar work in these other towns. After Jesus had left home, he had been baptized by John the Baptist and then disappeared for over a month. Nobody knew where he went. When he then comes Back on the scene, after this month of disappearance, he starts doing these incredible things, seemingly unlimited by the physical rules of the world. And despite his lack of education, they all knew what he had been doing. Despite his lack of education, he starts teaching in the synagogues of these towns, and he's teaching in, no, in a way that no rabbi or scribe had ever taught before. So then we come to verse 17 through 19. Check this part out. So Jesus stands up to teach on this Sabbath day, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is handed the, the church's Bible, the synagogue's Bible, not like a book that would be bound this way, most likely a scroll. And so Jesus unscrolls it and goes to a section of Isaiah chapter 61. If you want to, I would encourage you stick your finger in Luke and go to Isaiah. It's about smack dab in the middle of your Bible. If you go to Isaiah chapter 61, you'll be going to the spot where Jesus had opened the scroll that Luke records. But I want to show you a couple of things about it. If you've got one of the church's Bibles, that would be on page 581, Isaiah 61. See, a little bit about Isaiah while you're turning over there. Isaiah was one of the most significant prophets of Old Testament times. And most of Isaiah's message predates, came before, the first fall of Israel. There were actually two falls of Israel. 
And as I've taught before, when it comes to trying to understand biblical prophecy, much of Old Testament prophecy has like a nearby or an immediate fulfillment and then has some type of longer term fulfillment that comes way farther in the future of the prophet. And so part of Isaiah's message, the context coming up to chapter 61, Isaiah had just prophesied the fall of Israel due to its failure to keep the covenant that it made with Yahweh. I'm trying to cover a bunch of, a bunch of stuff as quickly as I possibly can, but just in case you're unfamiliar, essentially God had chosen a people for himself and made a deal with them. This deal we refer to as a covenant, and the covenant was if you follow these laws, I will ensure that you as a nation stay prosperous. That was the deal. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the story, did the nation of Israel keep up their end of the deal? No, no, they did not. Which is weird for Isaiah then to be writing what we find in Isaiah chapter 61. Because Isaiah wants the people to know that God's faithfulness will restore Israel. That God is a God, that Yahweh is a God of, I'm just starting to learn Hebrew, so I'm going to spice in some like Hebrew words whenever I can, because I'm working really hard on it, and I want to, okay? <laughs> so God is a God, one of the things that God gets praised so much for in the Psalms is that Yahweh is a God of chesed. Oh, it's so fun to say, you got to try it, but you got to clear your throat at the beginning of the word. Okay, that God is a God of chesed. Try it. It's fun, isn't it? This word chesed is that God is faithful to his covenant and is merciful and shows loving kindness even in spite of Israel's failure. That Yahweh shows himself to be a God that even when Israel doesn't keep up their end of the deal, he still chooses, because of his chesed, to keep up his end of the deal. And so Isaiah prophesies. Look at Isaiah's message in 61. It ought to look familiar. It's basically the same thing we saw in Luke. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord, that's Yahweh, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who mourn. Now, here's what's interesting. If you've got your finger in Luke chapter 4, my finger slipped out. Hopefully, you're stuck in there. If you've got your finger in Luke 4 and you look at those two passages, you notice that Jesus stopped in the middle of a verse. He actually stops in the middle of Isaiah 61, verse 2. What Jesus read in the synagogue was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. What he doesn't read is, and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, what Jesus wants to point out in Luke, what Jesus was pointing out that day in the synagogue was that even when Israel would be devastated by them being taken over by the Babylonians, that God intended to put them back together. But then it would still be a day in the future that the Lord would seek a day of vengeance which they would refer to as the day of wrath, the day of the Lord. 
and it's not yet fulfilled. So Jesus then says something very specific about this prophecy of Isaiah. Go back to Luke chapter 4, and I want you to see what Jesus says. He finishes the sec- the, with the first half of verse 2 of Isaiah 61, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, that Yahweh, the God of Chesed, would be binding up those who are oppressed. And so Jesus, in verse 20 of Luke chapter 4, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. When Jesus sat down, this was how you knew in first century Judaism that a rabbi was about to teach. It's kind of literally the opposite of what we've got, right? You know that it's about time for somebody to teach because one person marches up to an empty stage and stands behind this thing. You know that somebody is about to teach. It was different in the first century Judaism. If you were a rabbi, when it came time to teach, you pulled up a seat and you sat down. That's how you knew that the teaching time was about to begin. And we know that the people in the synagogue knew that because of the second half of verse 20. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Every single eye of everyone in attendance. This is the whole town of Nazareth gathered in one place. What is Jesus going to say? Why did he read this passage? What's all the hype about? I've known who this kid is for decades. Who does he think he is to sit down like a rabbi as though he's about to teach us from this this scroll, this thing that we've heard so many times? Why does he pick this passage? Verse 21, Jesus finally answers. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says in verse 21 today, what I've just read to you, and then the Greek word that's used in Luke is peplerotai, means it has been fulfilled. It's not necessarily important that you remember the Greek word, but what is important is to understand the tense in which it was used. This is written in a tense called a perfect tense. And the significance of a word being written or stated in the perfect tense means that something has happened in the past, but has current significance and future implications. I want you to think about that for a second. That it has something that has happened in the past, but now it has current significance and future implications. What Jesus is saying, according to verse 21, is that what Isaiah has prophesied has now come true, and things are about to change. Read on. Today, this scripture, I'm in verse 21 again. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? This text implies that Jesus continued teaching even after this significant statement of saying that this prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled in their hearing. And they were amazed. How is it that he, Jesus, could be teaching so significantly in such a way since, I mean, we've known this kid for our whole lives. And he's trying to tell us that Isaiah's prophecy has become true by him reading it to us. 
I want you to stop here for a second and think about this moment that's happening in this synagogue. I want you to, even if, uh, one of the things I like doing, especially when I read narrative texts, is imagining myself there. I want you to imagine yourself sitting there in this moment. Because interestingly, I think that this is the, this is the moment where the majority of the Western world sits. They know that Jesus existed. And they know that their version of what he was is something that they can get on board with. They're pretty excited about what the message that they think Jesus wants them to hear. A message that says things like, love people and don't judge other people and help the helpless. This is a message that the Western world can get on board with. But as we are using this message to conclude this series on our house, what our house, what our church is, it is at this precise moment where our house, this church family, is distinguished from the meeting of the Optimist Club or the Lions Club or the Rotary Club or High Fives or Sierra Community House, or any other local benevolent association that might get together for a meeting and might be on board with the idea of loving people and not judging other people and helping the helpless. All of these great organizations that I've just listed are not bad. They would join with the Nazareth Synagogue, and they would cheer with the idea that Isaiah's popular message that Jesus is saying has been fulfilled We're going to get on board with that. But what's different about Sierra Bible Church? Is our house any different than a gathering of any of those places? What is different? Luke's story gives us the answer. Look at verse 23. At this moment, when everyone's all impressed with him, he said to them, doubtless you're going to quote to me this proverb. Physician, Heal yourself. What we heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus understands that while he's teaching, the people are getting all amped up. Some of the unbelievable things that Isaiah said were going to happen, now Jesus is saying they're going to happen, and they're excited. Jesus, unleash this power that you've been showing everywhere. Unleash it here. Jesus, in verse 24, essentially tells them it's it's not going to happen here. It's not going to happen here in Nazareth. Then he tells them something very disturbing. Look at verse 25. In truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land, but Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to one woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus reminds the people in the synagogue of two events, of two of their most significant prophets, Elijah and Elisha, which we don't have time this morning to talk about in detail, except for the one one theme that unites these two stories. 
that in these two stories, the man of God was sent to help the non-Jew, was sent to help the outsider. Even when the Jews were wanting something to happen, the man of God was being sent to an outsider. Now, there were definitely more than one ideas about what the Jewish Messiah was going to do. But every single idea about what the Messiah was going to be had one thing in common. That the Jewish Messiah was for the Jews. So the whole synagogue is now looking at Jesus and saying, wait a minute. If you're as significant as it seems that the rest of the towns around us are telling us that you are, if you're the guy, you should be fixing our problems. What are you trying to say? Are you saying that you're not only going to be what we as your hometown want you to be, but you're not even going to fix things for our people? Which you can see why they reacted the way that they did starting in 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They get whipped up into a frenzy. They grab Jesus, trying to execute him, and it's only because of Jesus' mysterious power that he escapes. Why is this scene happening? These people in the synagogue could possibly share something that is also inside your heart. These people had decided what they wanted Jesus to be. And the moment that he told them that he was going to be something else, they wanted to kill him. What is this house? This meeting that you worked so hard to be at. What is this family? What differentiates it from even the best meaning entities outside this building that surround us? In this house, in this church, we will let Jesus be whatever he wants to be. And we will follow him wherever he takes us. Jesus of Nazareth is unquestionably the most influential figure in global history. You cannot find somebody in global history that had such an impact on how things unfolded more than Jesus. No one anywhere has had the impact that this tradesman who unveiled himself to be so much more. And in response... Doesn't it feel sometimes like people just want to take Jesus as like a rubber stamp of approval so that they can put him on their project? That they can take Jesus and put him on their mission? That maybe we shouldn't say they? That maybe I like to form Jesus in my image instead of him forming me in his Jesus actually taught that this whole idea was going to happen. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, he says a verse that 
that freaks a lot of people out, but within the context, essentially, he's just telling us that many people are going to say that they're working for Jesus. Many will call me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do, and then they insert this list of all these great things. Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many great works? And Jesus says, then I will turn to them and confess, I didn't even know you. Get away from me. Like those in the synagogue of Nazareth, there will be many people who wanted to bend Jesus to their own missions and use his name for their purposes. But my friends, that cannot be this house. It can't be us. Who instead will occupy this house? Who will be a part of us? Let me give you a picture. Flip a couple of pages over to Luke chapter 10. At the end of Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38, I want to read you a story that maybe some of you have heard, but it gives us a picture of contrast. Now, as they went their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you even care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But Jesus, the Lord, answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Just one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Who does Jesus applaud in this story? Say it. Mary. Mary. Thank you, young voice who said it. Killing it. (laughs) Pastor's kid. Every time. Train him up. Jesus applauds Mary, not the one who was doing all the important things for Jesus. Did you notice that distinct difference? He applauds the one sitting at his feet. Now, these few words communicate a gigantic significance that I will not spend a ton of time unpacking for you. But to sit at the feet of a rabbi, this is a a, a colloquialism. It's a way of taking words that mean so much more, but saying it quickly. To sit at the feet of a rabbi was only the job of those who followed the rabbi. They were called the Talmudim. I told you I want to use Hebrew words. Thank you for humoring me. These are the people who had apprenticed themselves to the rabbi. They believed that in this rabbi's words and actions was the true understanding of the eternal truth of Yahweh. And that by listening and following and picking up the example of this rabbi, they would be able to live like the rabbi and teach others in the same way. As Jesus had taught earlier in in Luke chapter 6, he says, every Talmudim, every disciple will be like his teacher. And look at who Jesus is doing it to, especially 
those of you who have this modern perspective, Rabbi Jesus was allowing a common woman from the town of Bethany to be his disciple. Now that might not mean too much to you, but this was unheard of. No, none, zero rabbis in the first century would allow a woman to be educated at his feet, let alone letting her sit at his feet, becoming his apprentice in such a way where there would be an expectation that this woman could be the same role as the rabbi. But Jesus was used to doing things that people weren't quite accustomed to, which is what caused that Nazareth synagogue scene which is what fueled his message of the Beatitudes, who are truly the blessed that you find in Matthew 5 and Luke chapter 6. Jesus was showing with allowing Mary to sit at his feet and apprentice herself that she could be one of his disciples. And he applauds her for doing so. What makes this house different than a gathering of the Optimist Club or the Lions Club is that we here are a house of apprentices. No matter what background you come from, no matter what gender you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter how smart you are, no matter what your job is, the invitation to you to apprentice to Jesus is wide open. And will you take it? Will you learn at the feet of your rabbi Jesus to live like Jesus and be about the things that Jesus was about? Or will you, like the Nazareth synagogue, shape him and form him into what you want him to look like? Because that version of Jesus is a whole lot easier to follow. The apprentices of Jesus Recognize that where he goes, we go. Where he sits to teach, we listen. Where he points, we look. Where he directs, we go. And what he does, we do. And just like Jesus was recorded to do all these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, so do we. I know that maybe the way that I'm sharing this idea with you could be a bit foreign to you. So let me just share two quick points as I'm wrapping up. They're not like too quick, like I'm wrapping up as a speaker and I've got another 20 minutes. Like, no, I'm, I'm just exposing this quickly to you. The idea of apprenticeship to Jesus might be a bit foreign to you. So let me just remind you of two quick things about an apprentice. Number one, an apprentice is not one who learns about her teacher. It's not about accumulating more knowledge about your teacher. Instead, an apprentice spends time with the teacher. And an apprentice learns how to be like the teacher. Right? Like, I've got, I'm looking around in here and I see carpenters and plumbers and electricians that are very used to this apprentice concept. Do you want an apprentice? And tradesmen, I know you don't like to be the center of attention, so I won't point any of you particularly out, but just answer this question. Do you want an apprentice that shows up and knows the whole list of the book about how to do things? Or 
one that actually can learn from you how to do them. Which one do you want? One or two? You want two. You don't want the guy that has a bunch of knowledge about what it is that you do. You want the guy that actually knows how to do what you do. And by spending time with the teacher, the apprentice learns how to be like the teacher. It's not about accumulating knowledge about the teacher. Point two, an apprentice is not one who is primarily concerned about doing things for the teacher. Over time, instead, the apprentice learns how to do the things that the teacher does, and then the apprentice does the same. This is a crucial distinction that some of you need to let the Holy Spirit drive deeper into your spiritual brains. It is not about you doing things for the teacher. It is about you learning how to do the things that the teacher does and then doing the same. Now, there's so much more about this idea of apprenticeship to Jesus that I want to tell you, but for now, I will settle just for this as an introduction. And I hope to spend much more time on this idea for you in the, in the next coming years. So I will just finish with this idea. You may know precisely who Jesus is, or you may not. But even if you don't, he knows precisely who you are. And he loves you exactly where that place is. And he is calling you, reminding you this morning, beckoning you, wooing you even, to apprentice yourself to him, to learn from him, how to live with him, how to live like him, and how to join with him. Our house will be a place where we will do what we can to not waste any of our possible time anymore, but instead to recognize Jesus' words when he says, enter by this narrow way. Because this wide path, everybody's going down this way. This way where everybody gets to shape me into doing what it is that they think that I should be doing, that's what pretty much everyone will do. But instead, enter by this narrow way and learn from me. Like Mary, come sit at my feet and learn to be who I am because this narrow way will lead to life. As the first Sunday of the month, we typically will, will have communion together, so I invite some of the guys that are available to do so uh, to come up and, and help us serve. But what we celebrate when we celebrate communion is the very life to which Jesus is inviting us. He says, take this meal, this symbolic flesh and blood, take it within yourself, taking my life within you, that we may be about the same thing. So these guys will serve communion, and then Brad will invite us to take together as a family as we celebrate who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that makes us in response.